Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. Uh, Today, we're looking at John 20, verses 19 through 31. And this is regularly in the Revised Common Lectionary. It was in there last year, this famous story of Doubting Thomas. So we're going to give you the best of Alan and Christine. And so I think we just really simply need to um, kind of question and ask, why is the Revised Common Lectionary looking at the book of John here? Well, that's a good question. If I remember correctly, I think I think they may shift to John in all three years during during the season of Easter for the gospel readings. And so, um, I, I think this may be one of the ways in which the people who put together the Revised Common Lectionary tried to work John into the three year cycle. You know, they tried to work him work John's gospel right, in course, wherever they, wherever they can. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, the, the, the lectionary takes us then into John's account of, of the resurrection of Jesus. And it begins with, um, in the first part of the chapter, we have um, the um, women's discovery of the empty tomb. And instead of three women, John's gospel focuses only on Mary Magdalene. When she finds the stone moved away from the entrance, she reports it to the group of disciples. And then Peter and the beloved disciple run to the tomb. Meanwhile, Mary must have returned because while she was weeping outside the tomb, she encounters the resurrected Jesus. And so then we we move from there into our lesson for today. So this passage today uh, deals with two appearances of Jesus. Is that significant? John's gospel has several appearances of the resurrected Jesus. Um, so does Luke's gospel. Matthew's gospel only has the one where where he appears to them on a mountain somewhere in Galilee. Um, I think, though, that the first episode, really, uh, it, it is significant in, in its own right, because in the first episode, we have uh, Jesus' first appearance to the disciples where he where he commissions them, he breathes the Holy Spirit upon them. And then the second episode is all about Thomas. Mm -hmm. And I think the whole point of that passage has to do with the blessing on those who have not seen and yet have believed. So, yeah, I think it is significant that we have these two episodes. Um, You know, in the first episode, the gospel reiterates from verse 1, earlier on when it talks about Mary Magdalene going to the tomb, that all of this took place on the first day of the week. And then uh, in verse 26, where it introduces the episode with Thomas, it implies that the encounter, that encounter with the disciples took place also a week later on the same day. So very likely, I would say, by the time John's gospel was written, the traditions, the tradition of Christians gathering on the first day of the week or Sunday for worship was probably well established based on the tradition that Jesus was resurrected on that day. So, you know, that's just an interesting point that, that, you know, John seems to really emphasize, you know, these things happened on that day, uh, on the first day of the week. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. It it reminds me that John's gospel is maybe, you could correct me, also about 
that building that church. You know, we talk about that in terms of Acts, but maybe that has a little bit with John as well. Sure. That that church is there, that church is starting to function as a church. So it's kind of... I think all the Gospels were meant to to support the the Christian communities Mm -hmm. they were written to. Yeah. Then we had, as we're looking at this, we, we have this Jesus that appears. And so one of the big questions is about the nature of Jesus's body. Um, what do we learn from the Gospel of John? Well, um, in this first episode, John says that the disciples gathered behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, which we've seen before probably refers to the Jewish leaders, and that Jesus came and stood among them. Now, I think that language sort of very much precludes the idea that this was some sort of a visionary experience. Like, for example, with with Paul's encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, Mm -hmm. we could see that as a vision based on the language. The language makes it clear here that Jesus was present in some sort of bodily form, although it was one in which he could somehow pass through locked doors. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I don't know that we know much more about Jesus' resurrected body other than, you know, they could recognize the marks mm-hmm. of, of his wounds and they, they could recognize him. Somehow he has some kind of bodily form. Well, and I think our modern, particularly modern brains want to try to make sense of this in some type of rational form and i think part of the part of this is part of the mystery that we can't yeah. really understand i that. don't think i don't think that's i don't think the point of I agree. of this passage has to do with what kind of body jesus exactly. had i think the point is that jesus was there and, and by the way that's what calvin says too so feel good about that <laughs> man you know yeah that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. But but as we you know we'll talk about later, that was a big deal in the medieval church, mm-hmm. and I'm that sure becomes a really big issue. Is is what was the nature of of this risen Christ? Yeah. So, yeah. so um, Jesus then greets them in what we would see as a very traditional way, saying "Peace be with you." Though in this setting, there may be something more implied. Um, it may be more that he's imparting peace to them, and I think. Um, it's important to see that there are echoes between post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and um, some of what he has said to the disciples in the the sort of the final discourses uh, uh, um, when he's you know preparing them for his departure, the the peace that he promised mm-hmm. them. Uh, in John fourteen twenty seven and John sixteen thirty three, um, you know that seems to be uh, something then that is correlated here with the fact that Jesus appears to them and and says not only once but twice, yeah. peace be with you. Uh, what struck what's striking me about this? Um, they knew. Yeah. I mean, this was not you know done in private. This was right. very public, and uh, they knew the the horror of crucifixion. They would have been in shock. They would yeah. have been in shock, yeah. and they would have been if you will, anything but peaceful. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think you're, I mean, I agree. And I think that's, that's more than just a greeting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, so then uh, John's gospel tells us that Jesus showed the disciples his hands and side, implying not only that what John has reported that Jesus side was pierced, but also that he'd actually been nailed to the cross. And um, John says that the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord, again, implying that Jesus was physically mm-hmm. present. They saw the Lord. Uh, he was physically present with them in some form. And, and I would say this also echoes the, um, uh, the promise of joy that Jesus gave to them in John yeah. 16, 21 and 22. Um, Lamore, tell us about the sending. 
what does it mean? Well, I think um, essentially Jesus commissions the disciples to carry on the mission that he had begun. You know, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Now, um, if you're if you're paying attention to the Greek, you'll notice that um, the first sent has the verb apostello, which we normally think of in terms of the apostolic commission. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The second verb, so I send you, mm -hmm. has the verb pempo, but it's very likely not significant here. They're simply functioning as synonyms. And I don't think we should read anything mm -hmm. into that. Sometimes synonyms are just synonyms. Right. So, you know, as as we may have talked about before, um, the idea of sending is an important idea in John's gospel. It describes Jesus' mission. Uh, he was sent so that the world might be saved. He was sent to speak the words of God. He was sent to complete the works that the Father had given him. He was sent so that the world may know the one true God. But in many cases, um, Jesus just speaks of himself as the one sent by God, and many, in many of those cases, he says that their response is that they should believe that he was sent by God. Now, the idea then that Jesus was going to send his disciples into the world just as the Father has sent him is foreshadowed in Jesus' quote-unquote high priestly prayer in John 17, 18. What all of this sending implies is left somewhat ambiguous, perhaps, Though I think it would be similar to his mission, that is to complete the work of spreading the word that others might know Jesus Christ and through him might know the one true God. I could see that people want, um, maybe want to draw more into that than, than, than is there, but, but it, seems, I, it, it seems pretty clear to me. So let's keep moving on through our, through our scripture. Um, now, what about this breathing in of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, it's pretty interesting, isn't <laughs> yes, it? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, this is language that we don't really find elsewhere. And, and John's gospel, in John's gospel, the word is actually to breathe on. So G, although some people have translated it breathe in or have interpreted it as breathe in, it really means to breathe on. And so Jesus breathes on the disciple at this point and imparts on them the Holy Spirit. And Part of the disconnect for a lot of us is that this happens on the day of his resurrection, not 40 days later right. at the Feast of Pentecost. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is consistent with what Jesus had said earlier in John's gospel, that after he left them, he would send the advocate who would instruct them and accompany them. And that's mm -hmm. found, again, in that, in that final discourse mm -hmm. um, in several places. And so I think what we're looking at here is that, that there were probably two divergent accounts of the giving of the Spirit. Both of them are meant to recount the empowerment of the whole church for the fulfillment of their commission. Some people have said, well, what Jesus is doing here in John's gospel, again, is a preliminary kind oh, of thing, and mm -hmm. then the full gift of the Spirit on the whole church uh, comes later at Pentecost. Mm -hmm. But that's harmonizing. And right. harmonizing really doesn't get us anywhere. Right, it, right. All it does is collapse the gospels. Which is one of the biggest problems that I feel like I deal with every week. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, when we do that, we're not treating the gospels seriously as gospels right. in and of themselves. And so I think we should take it seriously that in John's gospel, the resurrection, the ascension, the gift of the Holy Spirit all happen together. And this kind mm -hmm. of goes along with the whole idea of Jesus 
being lifted up. You know, right. he's lifted up on the cross. He's lifted up in the resurrection. Yeah. He's lifted up in the ascension. And and mm-hmm. and John seems to put all that together. The the other tradition is Luke's tradition, which which definitely separates very clearly the gift of the Spirit from mm-hmm. from Jesus. Um, uh, resurrection. You know, I think what we're looking at though is we've I mean we've seen for example that John can can take the cleansing of the temple which I think it's there's no question that it happened at the end of Jesus ministry. I agree. puts it at the beginning, yeah. right? Yeah. We've seen I, we see for example in Luke's gospel, Luke can take Jesus um encounter at the synagogue at Nazareth and relocate it from right in the middle of the Galilean ministry where it occurs in Matthew and, and Mark and put it right at the outset of Jesus' ministry. And again, these are for, I think, the reason was to call attention to some important themes, and this sort of sets the tone for their gospel. So I think we can see that that the gospels weren't, weren't intended to be strict chronologies. I think with John, there's a, there's a theology of, you know, the resurrection, the ascension, the gift of the Holy Mm -hmm. spirit. They're all together. You know, this is maybe an aside, but it is, it is drawing me to our process by which we go through this is verse by verse basically. Mm -hmm. And yet it's reminding me that these are designed within this bigger, bigger structure that these folks have put together for us. And so I do think when we do um, verse by verse, sometimes we are missing that. We do, we do. That details of that. Well, uh, because we, we have to set what we're looking at not only in the context of the gospel that it's in, we have to set it in the context of the whole gospel tradition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And so, so we, we can't ignore... The fact that Luke instructs the disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the gift of the Father, uh, the, the gift that was promised, and and that it happens forty days later, mm-hmm. we can't ignore that. Right. Uh, you know, the other thing is the other thing is Matthew and Mark seem to imply that Jesus' appearance to the disciples is going to happen in Galilee. Yes, Mark implies exactly, that. Exactly. Matthew states it. Luke, Luke. and John have them stay in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, And for Luke, we think that's probably, there's a theological Mm -hmm. reason behind Mm -hmm. that, that that Jerusalem was sort of the beginning point for the mission to the ends of the earth. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and you know, what's also striking me as we're doing this is here we're talking about this, and yet how many of of this in our minds, we are still collapsing them all together. Of course, we we tend to do that. So, okay, moving on then. Tell us about the mission of John this um, as a whole. Yeah. Well, it, you know, if we read, if we read just the passage sequentially, you know, Jesus says, "As the Father sent me, I'm sending you." Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on them to empower them to carry out this mission, and then we have a description that seems to be outlining the, the mission of the disciples to forgive the sins of some and to retain the sins of others. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At least this is what takes the place of right. what we find as a commissioning in Matthew 28, 19, you know, which we're more familiar with, um, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, you know, um, and Luke 24, 47, which talks about how repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in, in my name to all people, you know, um, so, I mean, if we're looking for a, a, the content of the commissioning, the only content that even seems to qualify here is this statement about forgiving the sins of some and retaining the sins of others. Now I have to admit precisely what this saying means 
has always been a mystery to me mm-hmm. because to me, forgiving and retaining sins rest in God's hands, not mine. Now, um, some may be familiar with the fact that um, they may not know who did this, but they may be, able, may be familiar with an argument that Julius R. Manti, who was an American Baptist New Testament scholar, and along with H.E. Dana, wrote a manual grammar of the Greek New Testament, and it was a, it was a textbook that was used for decades huh, okay. in seminaries. Uh, Manti tried to argue that the church's act of forgiving people— in their time, rests on the fact that they have already been forgiven based on sort of a dubious interpretation of the fact that the words forgiven and retainer in the perfect tense. So he would say, you know, if you forgive the sins of, of any, they will have already been forgiven. Right. And if you retain the sins of, of others, they will have already been retained. And that really doesn't, that really doesn't have a lot of, of, of validity, I think. You're, 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 He's putting too much on just the tense of the verb there. Now, apparently, the church fathers of the first three centuries understood this passage as a, a, refer- a reference to the forgiveness of sins at baptism. Uh, but I, wow. I don't think any of these ideas really clarify mm-hmm. what is, I, in my opinion, a, a, a really enigmatic statement. And, you know, unfortunately, if you look at it just on the face of things, in the Gospel of John, it would seem that Jesus was calling them to continue the work of the judgment of separating those who believe from those who don't believe, which we've already seen, that's that's not an adequate approach to people. You know, we can't we can't judge people's character and destiny based on whether they presently have faith or not. Well, no doubt there are traditions that do. And oh, that absolutely. Take this very literally that way. Oh, absolutely but, there, but, there are. Um, at least in our tradition, at least dating back to Calvin, Calvin doesn't view it this way at all. Yeah, um, which is interesting because Calvin is Mister uh, Predestination, right? right? And Mister 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 Judgment, he and, sometimes and, yeah. And he <laughs> he seems so full of judgment, and yet his approach to this is very interesting. Well, you've so, got me curious. Yeah, we'll 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 highlight that for later. Yeah. Okay. But now we have to go to our favorite because half of you are going to have <laughs> sermons on Doubting Thomas. So here we go. Let's talk about Thomas. Well, of course, the second episode begins with the mention of the fact that Thomas, who was one of the 12, um, had not been with them on that first evening. And why he wouldn't have been there, we really don't know. And who knows? I mean, I, you know, you can, you can speculate, but there's really no good 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 answer to that question. Um, now, the others report to him that, that we have seen the Lord, but Thomas refuses to believe unless he sees the marks of the nails in Jesus' hands and the wound in his side. And the construction conveys an emphatic refusal. I will never under any circumstances believe. Now, normally this would be conveyed by ume and the subjunctive mood verb in the Greek New Testament. Here, the verb pistuso could either be an aorist subjunctive, because in the subjunctive mood, the aorist drops that initial epsilon. It wouldn't, you wouldn't have that marker for the aorist mm-hmm. tense. Or it could be a future active uh, uh, verb. And in fact, um, if, if, you, if you took the time to compare, you would find that the future does take the place of the subjunctive mood on a number of occasions in the New Testament. But that really doesn't alter the meaning. So whether it's, whether, 
whether it's the future tense or whether it's the air subjunctive, the point is this is an incredibly emphatic negation. He's not saying, I don't think I'm going to believe. He's saying, I will never believe mm-hmm. unless I see these things. Now, this did lead to the tradition of naming him Doubting Thomas, but I don't think that really is a fair Uh, name for Thomas, because I don't think it does justice to his role in the rest of the gospel. Uh, When Jesus announces his intention to go to Jerusalem, it was Thomas who said, let us go that we may die with him. And so he, he displays courage there. I I don't see, I don't see Thomas as being any uh, more um, doubtful or having any more trouble with understanding and following Jesus than any of the other disciples. I mean, think of mm-hmm. Peter. Right. Peter denies Jesus, right? So <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's fair to to pick on Thomas with that. Well, interestingly enough, and I'm gonna I'm pushing a little bit early, but apparently they had actually mistranslated this Didymus, this the yes, twin, into yes. itself being the doubting part, so that the name was oh, doubting really, Thomas. Really, I don't know who started that tradition, mm. but apparently that had been, you know, the assumed um, correct uh, interpretation of, of this Didymus. word Didymus. Mm, so that doubt, yeah, wow. yeah. And so Calvin, no. Calvin actually comes in and said, that's wrong. It is wrong. So, um, <laughs> but, so I think not only is it from this episode that that happens, but also people had assumed that in the mm, actual name. Wow. So again, it's kind of, it's kind of double brought down to us that way. Sure, sure, sure. Well, of course, then basically this leads into the the story that the disciples, including Thomas, were gathered a week later behind locked doors. Literally, it says after eight days in the Greek text, if you're paying attention to that. But I think we're clearly meant to assume this means the next Sunday evening. And Jesus invites Thomas to see and touch his wounds, which apparently Thomas does not do. Uh, he does not touch Jesus. But uh, Jesus basically confronts Thomas for his previous refusal to believe and invites him to faith. And in response, Thomas makes the most exalted mm-hmm. confession of faith in the Gospels. And this is another reason why I think calling him Doubting Thomas really doesn't do justice right, to him. Right, Because he acclaims Jesus as my Lord and my God. In the Greek text, it's kurios and theos, which kurios served as the translation for Yahweh mm-hmm. in the Septuagint, and theos was the translation for Elohim in the Septuagint. So I would I would say Lord does not refer to Jesus' humanity. Mm-hmm. Lord, Lord refers to. That's applying the, the, the name of God, yeah. to, you know, Yahweh, that was transla- translated into kurios. That applies that to Jesus. So, um, some people consider Thomas this doubt as weak. And so how do we understand Thomas in the context of the resurrection? Well, I mean, you could see that uh, perhaps from the fact that Jesus confronts Thomas for his unbelief, for his refusal to believe, and also for the question, have you believed because you've seen me? But I don't think that's meant to discount Thomas's faith, but rather I think it goes along with Jesus' general approach that a faith that is based on seeing, especially seeing signs, is inadequate. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we have in, in John four forty eight, Jesus complains on an occasion when he's asked to heal, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Mm-hmm. But I think the point of all of this is not so much faulting Thomas, but rather the point of this is to set up the 
what follows, and that is the blessing that he pronounces on those who have not seen and yet have believed, mm-hmm. which, of course, includes all the readers and hearers of the gospel, right. including us. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, one of the main themes in this, I see... I see that of signs, that there's a tension between doing things and not needing signs to believe. Yeah. Yeah. And so at this point in the, in the story, we have another narrative aside from the authors or editors of the fourth gospel. Um, and I think it's ironical that they focus so much on the idea of signs uh, because, you know, Jesus himself says, you know, unless you see signs, you will not believe. Um, the editors themselves also say um, that um, um, in 1237, although he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. And so, you know, there is this sort of negative theme it's much stronger in the synoptic gospels jesus you know really takes a very negative approach toward faith that's based on signs so i, f- I find it ironic that that given given you know the fact that even in john's gospel even here in the even in this passage you know there's sort of an implicit um uh, chiding of Thomas for not believing without seeing, you know, they they come back and they say the whole purpose, you know, Jesus did many other signs, and the whole reason why we wrote this book of signs is so that you would believe. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's a bit of a tension there, a bit of an irony there that, that the purpose of the signs are so that you may believe in the Son of God, and by believing him, you may have life in his name. Um, now, of course, that statement of purpose that we find in John twenty thirty one is a thoroughly Johannine statement of purpose for the book. It is very consistent with what we find in the rest of the book. Um, but at the same time, I think um, I think there's there's some tension there between what Jesus Himself says about signs and what they see as the function of signs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's let's talk a little bit more about um, verse thirty one. Yeah, and um, this word pisteo, which verb we we learn in Greek one, tell us about the the variant here that has been in the text. Yeah, there is a textual variant here. Um, the earliest and best manuscripts of John read pistuete, which is a present subjunctive. Uh, in order that it's simply a subjunctive of purpose, it's simply stating the purpose. These these things have been written so that you may believe. While a majority of manuscripts have Pistusete, which with the added sigma, that would make it an aorist subjunctive. Now, many have adopted the view that the present tense would imply continuing to believe, so that we wrote these things so that you would continue to believe, uh, while the aorist would imply coming to faith initially. So the idea would be we wrote these things so that you would come to believe, and that's exactly that's in fact the way the new RSV translates it. I don't like that myself, <laughs> but and the reason is because I think. I think that's reading too much into the tenses themselves. Verb tenses do have significance, but the present tense can be used for a simple statement of something that happens, Mm -hmm. just like the aorist tense. And the aorist tense can have all kinds of nuances besides simply describing something that happened at some point in time in the past. So it's not so much the tense that carries the meaning as it is you know, the syntax of the whole construction, Mm -hmm. as well as the situation. Now, linguists will call this the pragmatics of the text. And that's one feature of of, of New Testament Greek that I think is so 
poorly taught. Mm-hmm. It's not even mentioned. You know, you're, you're taught to trans, you're taught to look up the words in a dictionary. You're taught a little bit about syntax, but you're not really taught anything about how language functions. Right. And that's the missing part because the pragmatics, that's about, you know, what's the, per, what's going on here? What's, right. what's going on right. behind the scenes? So are, are we to imply, are we to understand that John's gospel was intended for those who were already Christians and therefore it was written to reinforce their mm-hmm. faith? Or are we to understand that it was for those who would be hearing about Jesus for the first time, and therefore it was written to lead them to faith? Well, from what we know about the use of the New Testament documents in in the ancient world, in the early Mm -hmm. church, these documents were read in church. They were read in worship. So I I would say it would be far more likely that the former is the case, that that it's written to reinforce the faith of people who are Christians. And that's that's actually implied by the New Living Translation. And that's what it is. Continue in a, to believe. That's what it is in a new common English Bible. Also, you know, most English translations simply have "in order that you may believe," which leaves it open to interpretation. Um, I, I just think, given the situation, it's much more likely this gospel was read to to Christians who were gathered for worship, and so. Uh, this it, it doesn't make much sense to interpret it as a statement of leading people to faith. Right, right, right. Not right. in the original setting anyway. Sure, sure. You know, as I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about, you know, doing my translation work for Greek and and um, kind of the process, I think, you know, at least for me, the challenge was, okay, you've got these, you've got these words, you're, you're constructing them together you're, and you're trying to make them make sense. And so... I mean, I think some of these question marks become apparent just as you are starting to try to make them make sense in your own language. You know mm. what I mean? So you start to ask those questions. Well, th- that's one of the reasons why from the very first, from the very beginning of elementary Greek when I taught in seminary, I taught my students, identify the subject of the, of the sentence in the nominative case. Identify the verb. Right. Identify the direct object in the accusative case. Identify the indirect object in the dative case. You have to di- be able to diagram a sentence to be able to translate exactly. it. Exactly. You can't just put a literal translation sort of in your own interlinear and then try to string the English words together and make sense because word order in the Greek does not indicate the Ex- function of the word. Exactly, exactly. And, no, and I think that's actually, if you were struggling with Greek, that's a very good point to make out diagram it because yeah. then you can um, then you can actually process what each of these situations is doing because yeah. we know full well that the those indications are given by the the endings so so let's go on uh, what you know what um, John's gospel bears witness as you as you say to Jesus post-resurrection appearances to his disciples as yet another sign what, can you explain some of this well as we've seen before signs are important in the Gospels, uh, in fact, so much so that Raymond Brown, in his um, you know foundational commentary on John's Gospel, two volumes in the Anchor Bible, you know, he identifies John one through twelve as the book of signs, mm-hmm. and John uh, thirteen through twenty as the book of glory, and and so you know we have most of the signs that Jesus performed in that early section of John's Gospel, John 1 through 12. But as I mentioned, um, I think when we dealt with signs early in an earlier podcast, you know, there are some people who think that perhaps some of the other uh, ev- events that take place in John 13 through 20 are signs, mm-hmm. especially 
uh, the resurrection and especially the resurrect post-resurrection appearances. That's where Calvin was. Calvin yeah. said absolutely Jesus's Jesus's appearance in and amongst the disciples in that closed room was a sign. That was yeah. Calvin's approach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But to me, to me, you know, again, I find that the the author slash authors or editor slash editors who put the gun John's gospel, whoever the we in John 21, 24, I think it is, whoever that we is, uh, we know that his, his testimony is true. Whoever that we is, I think there's a tension here between um, what Jesus has to say about signs and, and what they, this statement in, in this passage in John 20, 31, um, about the purpose of the, of the gospel as, as leading them to faith. Uh, and again, as I said earlier, it's not only within the book itself, it's in this very passage. You know, although the editors of the gospel report Jesus' blessing on those who have not seen and yet have believed, they seem to think that writing a book of signs will somehow encourage the faith of those who already believe. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so to me, I think there's something of a disconnect between Jesus and the editors at this point. You know, what's the difference between seeing a sign and hearing about one through the gospel narrative. Mm-hmm. Now, some, particularly in a conservative context, would see the difference that in the narrative that is considered to be inspired, we can infer the work of the Holy Spirit in the act of hearing. And while I would agree that the Holy Spirit is the one who produces faith, in my faith, in my experience, faith is not as straightforward as what I think this text seems to presuppose. And so it might, you know, this might work that way at some of the beginning stages of faith development, but mm-hmm. I think it definitely does not with those who've begun to examine and even question their faith. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's true. I, I, I was thinking about this in terms, I guess, of... Uh, <laughs> Just in terms of, we don't have Jesus here with us to do right. signs. I mean, we're talking right. at the very beginning of of the 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 experience, and we're talking about a time too, in particular, when when there's so much stock put into signs. I mean, that's part of the whole. Sure. You know, we're talking about you know Greek tradition, omens, and looking for signs, and in Jewish tradition, and and in Jewish tradition. So, um, I, I think it fits into the context of the period too, which sure. Jesus lived. And I think then it becomes embedded into the gospel tradition. So we can leave and say, well, how did this form and happen? Right. And, uh, well, and in a yeah. sense, the narrative does, does then take the place of being, being able to witness Jesus actual works and be able to hear, being able to hear his actual words in person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, all right, friends, I'm going to tell you a little bit more in a little bit about how the Reformers handled this passage. Thanks. Yeah. We're back, folks, and uh, we're here for round two, and I'm going to let Christy uh, tell us about the Reformers. We've got some, I think, some interesting things up for us today. So tell us, uh, Christy, how did the Reformers interpret this passage? Sure. Well, for today, I really spent time looking at Calvin's commentary, um, and he goes through his commentary basically verse by verse. So that's what I am partly going to impart to you, but I also spent some time in a couple of Lutheran things. Um, uh, verses here become really, really important to um, the um, concepts of what become 
Luther's two kingdoms um, concepts. Um, so we see with like in the Augsburg Confession references to this passage. So I have some of those pieces in here as well that I can pull up. Um, and so there's kind of this spiritual space for this, but then there's also this kind of organizational mm. thing that comes out of this passage. So clearly, and I think what it tells us is they are seeing this as instrumental to the building of the church, particularly Luther. Calvin, um, but but Calvin would would see it as as um, the mission of 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 establishing the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So, um, kind of an interesting space. So I just started off right at the beginning. You know, um, this idea that the disciples are together, and so Calvin, being Calvin, believes this is. Providence, and I think that well, I think that's really interesting. And as yeah. we were talking, in fact, Al, Alan corrected me earlier. You know, the, the disciples weren't even watching the crucifixion; they're scattered about. And again, with this idea that there's some human agency, some hu- human choice, that somehow, in some way, shape, or form, that providence allowed them or built them so they were there together. Drew them so together, this perhaps. Was, yeah, yeah. So very, I thought that was an interesting piece. And yet at the same time, he's quite critical of these folks for hiding behind closed doors. <laughs> 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 that, that this is a deficiency in really? their faith. And wow. he's also, he's super critical of Thomas. Mm. Why wasn't Thomas there? And I, Really? Yeah, and it's so funny because, mm. you know, I've always, I've always been, I've always kind of, I guess, visioned this in my own world. Like, well, Thomas was was detained, or Thomas was um, threatened, or something happened that he couldn't get there. Well, the Gospel of Thomas seems to imply that he was off communing with Jesus on uh, his own, yeah, getting special go. revelations. Exa- exactly. <laughs> so I think it's really interesting. He was just really going after Thomas here, and as mm. as not as being so terribly weak. Mm. Um, but anyway, then they. Once they are in the room, of course, they're talking about Christ's entry. And I think what's interesting was Alan's point of somehow he got through these locked doors. And Calvin's like, we don't, that's just not even, we shouldn't even be asking that. Christ is there. Christ appears. Um, what kind of body he had is irrelevant. Really, but remember that that was such a big deal for the Roman Catholics, which I mentioned earlier. I mean, they were really concerned how Christ was there and what this said about the nature of Christ and whether Christ could be present in all places at one time. And of course, this well, becomes... Well, of course, because that's central to the the ability for, for Christ, for the elements of communion in every church, wherever it's being yep. celebrated, to become the body and blood of Christ. Precisely. Christ has to be in every place. <laughs> Precisely. And so this really gets caught up as an important verse then, wow. if you will, in supporting, you know, if we have to determine what the nature of Christ is here, because that's important for our sacraments. So it's a matter of Eucharistic theology, exactly, I guess. Huh? Wow. Exactly. That's amazing. And Calvin said that is absolutely the wrong emphasis, which is, I, I agree think, with what him, we yeah. agreed Definitely. as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. So pretty interesting stuff. Um, and But he he did feel that it was a big deal that Jesus appeared with his wounds, um, but that that was for our benefit, um, not so much... Um, not for much for Jesus's benefit in any way that 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 but that was important also for the apostles and you know I've always visualized I suppose drawings of this right so mm-hmm. you know I'm thinking of these wounds that are largely dried up no these Calvin's descriptions were like oozing open oh yeah yeah oh, um, 
Yeah, I wouldn't think of it that way. But you know, New Testament theologians will 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 point this point out the the idea that um, there is there is continuity between the crucified one and the risen one, and they can recognize the risen one, even though sometimes they don't. Right. Right. But, right. So there there is this physical resemblance that that yeah, that yeah. that and and the New Testament theologians call that you know see that as a as a demonstration of the continuity of that the crucified Jesus is the risen Jesus right one and the same person right right so I thought that anyway interesting points there I hadn't really I guess I hadn't spent that much time thinking about it right it's just kind of that process in my mind um but and so then we move on um talking about the Holy Spirit um and uh uh, this this idea that that the leaders must be charged with the Holy Spirit, but viewed that Holy Spirit in terms of um, that this was um, that this is a sign, but that this this in some way reflects the Word, um, which hmm. I thought that was interesting. So um, that it, that that this is how Word is spoken, if you will, right. is also through breath, right. and that this the Holy Spirit then is embodied with this idea of, of word mm. in it. That doesn't surprise me with Calvin, because, you know, um, I think, I, I, I may be wrong, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think in, 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 the Cal, in Calvin's tradition, you know, Calvin sees the Spirit very much acting through the word, yes. And, yes. and the two... Very much in conjunction with each other. Right. Yeah. Well, and as as, it's, as Calvin says, this is a quote, signs have no truth unless they right. be accompanied by the word of the Lord. Right. And of course, you know, I am visualizing here these early Calvinist churches where, you know, the pulpit is right in the middle of the, of the sanctuary and where all the other, you know, elements of, of images are gone. And so the word is so central. And so this mm-hmm. all fits with this idea. So that's how he processes it anyway. Sure. He's putting it into his, his theology anyway. Yeah. Um, now, of course, one of the big pieces um, that we talked about with Alan is this whole idea of how does Jesus um, commission the disciples to forgive sins of some and retain the sins of others. I can't wait to hear what Calvin well, has to say. Okay, this is really important <laughs> because Calvin is very insistent that it is not the role of the disciples to do forgiveness, that this is only done through Christ who mm-hmm. died on the cross. Mm-hmm. So that the disciples are not in any way in that space of giving that judgment that's not what they can do but that they they um but they can preach the word that offers forgiveness and it's kind of it what's interesting about this you know we talk we talk about this idea of of double predestination with calvin but there's really hope for almost everybody. I mean, we, I think in the modern world, mm. we, we, we think of, man, those are, there's those real pro- reprobate out there. They're going to hell and it's there, but it's so subtle. And he's like, look, um, these people that hear and respond to the gospel, even if they've like Thomas mm-hmm. is the example whose faith is bad still in him deep down is this, this space where his faith is like, and he says his faith is reawakened. Mm-hmm. Um, that he didn't lose faith, it's mm-hmm. reawakened, that it's still existent within. And there seems to be a great deal of hope that this is really for everybody. Wow. Um, it's just that he, there's space for those who, who, who hate the gospel. In fact, he goes into this whole thing. He's like, look, there's these, 
these people, when they hear the word, it's like they get harder and more obstinate that God doesn't exist. And, they, and, and, and those are the people that aren't saved. I see. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there is more space for questioning than you might think with Calvin. Sure. And, and, and actually, it's very comforting for me that he allows the sin to come in that makes us, makes us question our faith and that God is still there to mm. redeem those whom God has chosen. So very interesting. So, pieces so 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 the the disciples carry out their commission of forgiving sins and retaining sins simply by the proclamation of the gospel yes 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 um so i I confess i have never heard that interpretation before (laughs) (laughs) well and of course part of the big thing is here now again putting into calvin's worldview, which is shaped by one that has been dominated by Roman Catholic tradition, right, saying, right. look, here's the thing. You've got this priest who sits on high, who's who's forgiving your sins and not forgiving your sins, and that is really not the space. That's, mm-hmm. that's an incorrect means. The only one that can forgive sins is Christ, mm-hmm. um, and who has done so by his death on the cross. Yeah, and you've got these centuries of, of tradition in the Catholic Church that the that the church has the authority exactly. that they, that you know Peter was given the keys of the kingdom, which means he can he can shut the door and he can open for some and he can open the door for others, right? Right, right. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that that never has set well with me. Uh, no, it doesn't, and and that's exactly where he is, um, kind of what he's attacking. He's like mm-hmm. this this is this is wrong. This is. Um, and you mentioned that Luther used this in the Augsburg, Augsburg Confession. Yeah, How did okay. He use that? So as well, um, Luther becomes involved um, with this as well because there's this sense of um, really attack in there attacking this hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. So one of the roles, because they could get forgive sins, they are higher up than other people, and therefore their authority over not only faith but over people in general is higher because they're in a higher space because they are more pure. They have been given this authority to forgive sins. And so what it does is place the sacred world above the secular mm-hmm. world. And you're kind of going into that Neoplatonic vision of the world, if you will, where everything is spiritual is much higher than everything that is made of, of the earth and, and, and physical. So it, it, and he says, no, no, no. What we have are two branches of the world. We have this two kingdoms theory, you know, where you have, there's the, the kingdom of this world and then there's the, the spiritual kingdom and the church has authority over the spiritual kingdom and oh, the yeah. magistrates and both of them are equal under God. Hmm. So, and we're turning upside down, if you will, this idea that, you know, who, who has more authority, the, the church or the, or the magistrate? Mm-hmm. And so this is placed then into investiture. So we have to go back to the Middle Ages. Who has the divine right and who has the right to invest kings with their power? Well, Charlemagne started this all off in 800 where he said, oh, Pope crowned me king. Right. Well, that gave the authority of the biggest, you know, biggest bureaucracy that existed, um, giving Charlemagne his power. And yet that and that allowed the church to claim our power is from God. It's higher than any temporal power. Mm-hmm. So we're really shifting the whole entire mindset of the world. We're beginning this, beginning to have this inkling that there'd be a, a division between church and state. Mm. And I've talked about this before. <laughs> um, 
it's not a modern concept of that at all. In fact, there's still not an idea that you you could choose what religion you wanted. There's still this idea that there's there's one kind of broad Christian world and everyone fits under it and right. in it. So you don't have that kind of freedom that you would have in a modern day sense. In terms of separation of church and state, but, as we understand it. Yeah. Exactly. In terms of a separation of powers and an equality of powers, saying everyone's calling under God is equal, whether that be as a minister or a baker or you know, um, a candlestick maker, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, whatever your your call is, that those are all equal under God. Uh. Um, and aside to this, I just, I just heard a I just heard a, a paper not too long ago on the um, on the executioner. You know, you're thinking about a horrible job, and here even the executioner's job was seen as wow. yeah. yeah. <laughs> As seen as being one of called by God, so what a strange, um, what, what a strange space, and how that then evolved as well. But yeah. um, so, as I said, this this passage makes is a is a big deal. Yeah, we got to go to Thomas. Yes, please tell us tell us about Thomas. <laughs> well, I told you, Calvin's not very nice to Thomas. <laughs> and, Shame on and, him. And and I, I have to I have to quote him on Thomas because it's it's a good Calvin quote. He says the stupidity of Thomas of Thomas was astonishing and monstrous. <laughs> <laughs> and but yet he also recognized what we we talked about for that in some ways Thomas was, you know, the the most devout of the followers, you know, at the at the at the raising of Lazarus and the the presence there and yet um uh just well, and he makes the most, the most exalted confession of Jesus in the whole gospel tradition. Yeah, yeah. So what a strange, um, yeah. what a strange space for Thomas. But uh, I, I was, I was just going to say, it's not very pastoral of of Calvin to uh, to to be so hard on Thomas. It seems to well, me. Well, it, it 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 doesn't. Except then, ultimately, he he kind of he says, but look. Thomas provides us with some hope. As I said, this sense of that Thomas provides those of us that are doubting some kind of sense. So it's a really interesting space. It's, you know, he's, he, he just, he feels that, that Thomas is being a disciple shouldn't have, shouldn't have had that much questioning in uh, him, I think was. So was since it. he was one of the 12, he should have, he should have had more faith. He should have had more faith. He should mm. have displayed more faith. And yet, interesting though, Luther, when you head to Luther, is much more forgiving of Thomas than mm. this, mm. Um, and uh, both of them, both of them would say that that the whole scenario benefits benefits us as, as doubters. But but Luther in particular just talks about as as part of this human nature that Thomas clearly had, mm. um, and that both of them um, both of them really allude to the ultimate faith within is the only way. Sure. That the signs can't save you. That even by showing the signs, it's it's the faith that's right. going to save Thomas and a right. faith that's going to save us. Saying ultimately, blessed are those who believe that do not see. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the fact that the disciples must have been traumatized by the cross, and that's kind of the way I've always seen Thomas's refusal to believe mm-hmm. was that he was just really traumatized by yeah. Jesus' death on the cross. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, just a sense of. Uh, so much pain and maybe mm-hmm. even somehow dealing with that pain. Mm-hmm. And then the idea that here's, here's my savior. Here's the, 
a person I follow back, it would be really hard to swallow. I think our human minds, uh, I have to live this over again because I can't believe this could happen. Well, and you have you have something like that in the in the story of the road to Emmaus in Luke's gospel, where they say, you know, that they talk about the things that have happened to Jesus, and we had we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You know, so yeah, they were they had really invested a lot of their hopes in him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. We move on um, towards the big question, the tension between signs and faith. And, you know, I wrote down in my notes, Presbyterian 101. I mean, I remember memorizing. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what I you said to say I just remember memorizing <laughs> in, in seminary, you know, um, that sign, that the, the signs are, are um, a, demonstra- uh, a demonstration of things invisible or not seen was one of the things that pulled out. But the signs mm. are really just a, a, a sign of... Um, of of internal grace, yeah. and so this idea of um, well, it sounds like it sounds like Presbyterian theology of the sacraments, I, right? Absolutely, it's an outward and that, sign of an inward grace, exactly, and that's the same true here as well. That mm. all of these signs reflect um, re- reflect this this grace of God. They're they're given there so that t- they're given there so that we are reminded of of Christ's sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so and so, as you said earlier, the signs. The signs don't, in and of themselves, produce faith. It is it is right. the spirit who produces faith, Absolutely. and it's the faith that saves. Yep, and that faith must be founded on the Word of God. Mm-hmm. That's always a big piece here, and um, and then ultimately, and then it just we 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 wound out with many other signs. Um, you know, uh, just again, um, the. Calvin believed that they put this in here just just to say, look, there's other stuff people have heard of, and we don't want people to um, to to limit that their understanding mm-hmm. of who Jesus is. We we that this is a true gospel. That you know, this is just what what's needed here for for your kind of reflection on who Christ is. You know. Well, and you know, I, I mean, obviously, our sacraments are particular signs of God's grace. Right. But I've always had this notion that. All of creation is potentially sacramental in that anything can be a sign of God's mm-hmm. grace. Is that something that Calvin would uh, would kind of. endorse? Yeah, kind of. You know, Calvin did believe that you could see God in nature, but that was only an imperfect understanding of God uh, yeah. because it, it, it wasn't really... Natural revelation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so he does a whole bunch of stuff on that. But then ultimately um, that it's you can only fully understand who God is if you fully believe in in christ mm-hmm. so uh, by special revelation by special, based on the word exactly yeah. Yeah. exactly so um well and i guess you know i'm looking at um at you know the created order through the eyes of one who has lived faith and has you know has right. been instructed by the word and so you know as i look at the created order through those eyes, you know, that's what I see. I see it's all potential, over. potential yeah. for sacramental, exactly. for sacramental grace everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. But I do think, you know, as I put in the end here, even those types of signs are used to draw attention to the saving grace of God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ask the yes, questions. It, it, it's not that it's separate from God's presence. It's just that it in itself is not complete. I think a lot of our good theology is really, is really seen through these eyes in this passage. Sure, and so it's, it was fun to read, but it's like, Oh yeah, well I, I'm kind of in tune with that because that's kind of the stuff. <laughs> right. 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 So, um, it's good, good passages. All right. Thanks Christy. Thanks.
Hi, everybody. We are back. And I got thinking about this passage today, and I really think um, it really asks us to think about our faith. I mean, as we think about Thomas, and a lot of us identify with Thomas, and we've been deep questioners and, and seen Thomas as someone we can identify with, and and yet at the same time, we feel guilty when we question our faith. And so, um, you know, I think, I think questions about faith and talking about faith with our congregations is important. So Alan had some ideas here, and we're going to talk about these ideas and um, build on them. So the big question is, how, how do we come to faith? Um, you know, especially if signs don't do it um, and, and, and or strengthen our faith in Jesus. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to sort of take it in stages here first because you know um, one of your questions was about questioning itself, and we we feel guilty about questioning. And I actually just had um, a, a young person who is in college who grew up in my church, went through my confirmation class, and who is is now questioning faith. Reach out and contact me, and we had a conversation about it, and. I think it's important for us to recognize that coming to faith is not just a one-step, one-and-done kind of process. Right. Uh, James Fowler, to me, is the guy who wrote the book on the stages of faith development. I know some of you may know more about it than I do, and I know there are other, there are other models out there than his. Uh, you know, one of the things that Fowler points out is that you know, I mean, we all we all tend to embrace the faith of our parents or the faith of our church that we're raised in, but at a certain point, it is it is natural for us to begin questioning, and it's natural for us. It's kind of like you know we begin to break down that faith that we have that we have just sort of adopted right. from our families or from our church families, it's natural for us to break that down into its component parts and just to really look at it. And, and that, that can become the process of making faith your own. Right. And so I, I tend to say we don't have a conversion to faith. I agree with we that have, 100%. We have many conversions, hopefully, right. to faith right. throughout our lives. And, you know, Fowler identifies six particular stages in faith development. So, you know, that would mean we have a number of, you know, right. we have several there, but I think we have, for me, my experience is I have many smaller conversions to faith on a regular basis, hopefully. Well, and that's consistent with, you know, obviously justification versus sanctification. A mm-hmm. sanctification is indeed this process by which we come to faith, by, by which our faith grows and changes, which is yeah. as Presbyterians why we say, look, you can be baptized be, and, into the church as a baby because it allows you to grow up and, and grow in your faith, which has these stages as opposed to this, um, you know, well, one time you're, you believe now. And of course we know that that can really lead to problems too, because folks can be, but I fell away. And I hear of folks that want this experience over and over and over. And, I've and seen it. I've seen it. It happens because, you know, if it has to be some really dramatic life-changing experience and you have this dramatic emotion, it really tends to be based on emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, but yeah, I, I agree. I love the, I love the nurturing side of our approach to it that, that we, 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 we raise children in the faith and we nurture them all along the way, even after they 
go off to college, you know, and they right. start their questioning process, we can still support them in that process. We can process. support them in the process. Yeah. And we yeah. have, most of us have had that same experience um, ourselves. So we can share yes. our experience and the conclusions we made. One of the things, the other part of it was, you know, the whole idea of how do we come to faith or how do we strengthen faith in Jesus? And, um, you know, the Gospel of John speaks about the signs that Jesus did that are meant to bring about faith and that the narrative of the Gospel is meant to either encourage faith or to bring about faith. And, you know, I'm a person who grew up reading the Bible and I've, you know, I've read the Bible devotionally as well as, you know, in a scholarly way, in an academic way for, you know, 40 years <laughs> plus. And um, there is something about the text of Scripture. There is something about the Word of God written mm-hmm. in Scripture that, um, you know, I, I, I would say that it is the Spirit taking the Word and making it you know, speak to us. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the living, the word becomes alive for us. You know, in our own hearts. Um, however, that it, it's not always the way it works. No, because we all face crises of faith in yep. our lives, yep. and the question, really, I think for me is, how do we maintain our faith when push comes to shove? When we're backed into a corner? When right. we're facing a crisis that just seems nothing makes sense. None of it makes sense anymore. Right. What do we do then? Right. You know, I, for being in a secular world with my studies, the scripture became not about a, mm-hmm. a book of faith, but it became about this book that this group of people called the Christians read. Um, it was another book just, from antiquity. It, it, it really was. And so you came to it with these very different kinds of eyes. Um, and I think there's a difference between coming to Scripture with the Holy Spirit, um, and 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 looking for the Word of God in it, and coming at it as a secular scholar. Sure. And I think one of the biggest problems is people come at it and they come at it and say, "I'm going to read this and it's going to ignite my faith." And the reality is that not unless you come at it with with the right mindset. If you come at mm-hmm. it thinking that this this book the book in itself isn't going to make you believe right some people almost have a magical view of the bible right. that if you just if you just drop some of the words of scripture on people it's going to create faith right right and it doesn't work that way exactly <laughs> exactly it, it doesn't and and so for me it has been working with the text and finding out its truth within uh within the world i'm struggling with mm-hmm. you know um finding out how the theology and story, if you will, of God then works into the story and reality of, of, of history is how I, is how I came to it. Sure. So it's a very different kind of, kind of way. Um, well, as a historian, that makes sense. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I, I just tell this story, you know, when I, when I took history in my secular school, it was, and, and I was a product of the 80s and early 90s, and um, there was really a sense that everything we'd done was wrong and that it's just a matter of time before doom and gloom come over. And I, 
most of us left the university really not feeling very spirit-filled, and there's really nothing but me to base my worth on. And in my world, it was a pretty hopeless place. And so my my be- kind of beginnings into reclaiming faith really had a lot to do with, I can't live this way. Mm-hmm. I can't live in a space. And once I started to live into a space of, of looking for hope and looking for uh, then I began to see that we could construct a historical understanding of the world. And then I began to say, you know, I can look at something bad, but does that necessarily lead to the ultimate end? Right. Or does something good come out of it? Right. And and how does that reflect what's going on in the, in the broader scheme of things? And we can take, we can pinpoint times of so much evil that we think that defines our world and we can just go live in that or we can say no because we can learn and grow and we can move forward towards what i would say now is providence towards what god's plan is for for the world and when you look at it that way then all of a sudden you have um you changes your whole space right you have options you have possibilities instead of just the just a closed view of the world Yeah. yeah you become called to be um an agent of God in that space instead of, I mean, I I had a similar kind of experience in a different way. I was raised in the church. I never left the church. I was, I was called to ministry at the age of 17. I went to, went to college as a Bible major. I became a Bible and a Greek major in college, went straight to seminary, went straight into PhD, you know, went straight from my PhD into teaching the seminary and the seminary, you know? And so for me, it's been a journey that has always been within the within the context of faith, um, and yet, you know, again, because of my own personal experiences that pushed me to the boundaries, you know, I've come to some reflections on this as well, mm-hmm. and some of this has been in reflection in in reference to some of the theological reading I've done as well. I mean, you know, for me, I think in those in those boundary times and those times that push us faith is a choice it is a choice to look at reality from the point of view that god is making all things new rather than that death is the ultimate reality and actually my favorite reformed theologian jürgen moltmann emphasizes this over and over and over again in his major theological works that um you know with without faith all we have is the vicious cycles of death, as he calls them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, there are plenty of people out there, you know, who have embraced that sort of a nihilistic approach Absolutely. to life. Absolutely. And it's, it's a, it, you're right. You put the nail on the head. It is a hopeless place. It is. It is a hopeless way to live. I mean, you think of truly living to die. And in a yeah. way, there, there's, a, there's a, but die? Or die to the resurrection, mm-hmm. and that's a very different space. Mm-hmm. And it, I think you have it here, hoping against hope. Later yeah, on, I mean, this yeah, idea yeah. of this this complete fullness of when you're living life because of the resurrection, because your life and your your eternal salvation is a whole different space. I mean, there's and and this joy and purposefulness of which you're called to be in this space is. Uh, is awesome, you know, yeah. and it kind of takes it out of the, <laughs> I, I, I came today a little bit grumpy because I've just, little things may be grumpy, but when you really think about it, it takes you kind of out of that it does. stuff. It and does. It, it, it reminds you of this greater purpose for which, and, and it and the, brings a joy. It brings a joy. Yeah. yeah. And hope, 
hope brings joy. Exactly. It does, yeah. And to me, you know, I mean, Seren Kierkegaard talked about the leap of faith. Carl yep. um, Barth speaks of, of the gospel as something that can only come to us as, 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 as a message that sounds incomprehensible and meaningless and a vast impossibility. He says that in the Romans commentary. Um, I, you know, one of, the, one of the people who helped me most with this idea of hoping against hope, which obviously is taken from Romans chapter 4, that's a phrase that Paul uses for Abraham's faith. But one of the things that helped me with that idea of hoping against hope uh, is, is John Caputo. He's a, uh, he's a philosopher at the, I think at the Penn State. I think he's at Penn State. Uh, he has this little book called On Religion where he sort of follows Augustine's lead in some of the, some of the really driving influences that led him to faith as he describes them in the confessions and um you know there is this sense in which you know you either choose to hope or you choose to just surrender to you know the reality that the only reality is death and taxes, right? Right, <laughs> and, right. And that is an incredibly dark place to be. It's a really it's a, dark place a, to be. And it's there's nothing to it. I, I guess for me, though, you know, throughout my life, I've had these crisis experiences that have pushed my faith. But throughout my life, I've also had these other experiences. And, you know, philosophers, Christian theologians, just believers have have struggled to put a word to what that experience is for me it is just to i just say i'm comfortable saying it is a response to my experience of something or someone who is beyond me and and i i may not even be able to understand right. or imagine what that something or someone is right. and yet i have experienced that someone I, i'll use the language of someone mm-hmm. because it is a personal yeah, presence. It is a personal experience. I agree, and and it draws me out of despair and right. into hope and faith and joy. I don't know how to how to respond to that anymore. I I've had that similar experience, and um, I I do think there's a sense that in our humanity that we are given the given the capacity to ignore that space, right? Mm-hmm. I think that we can become very caught up with everything else and we can we can walk away. I mean, I think it's that human agency in our faith. I think that's where our spiritual disciplines come in. That's mm-hmm. we may practice for a long time and not hear, not feel that space. Yeah. But I think when we when we do that and when we begin that process of listening, I think we are given the capacity to hear it. And so, you know, I, I <laughs> Alan's next question on here is what what are we sent to do as Jesus disciples? Mm-hmm. And I think our main to do um, is to live into that space and let other people see yeah, it. I agree. Yeah, you know, I've practiced the spiritual disciplines for decades, and I've had times where it was just like as dry as the Sahara Desert, and then one day, for no apparent <laughs> reason. All of a sudden, it comes to life again. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's weird. <laughs> and you know, I don't know why that is, but I've I've experienced that many times, and so I keep trying. You know, my my spiritual disciplines have ebbed and flowed. They've changed 
over the years. I don't. I haven't kept to one particular pattern that has just been lifelong. I've used many different patterns, and I guess you know what I tell people is we're we're just wrapping up a prayer study in in our church right now, and and I tell people you know the most I guess the most effective way for you to pray is the pray is the way that works best for you. Yeah. And I would say that about disciplines, the spiritual disciplines. The most effective way to practice yeah, spiritual disciplines is the way that works best for absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think if you adopt something, and, and you all know this as pastors out there, um, um, but I think it might be worth reminding our folks that if they listen, and they listen long enough, and they listen with their heart, mm-hmm. that they will, they will hear something. They will. Yeah. They will. And I like, I like your comment that, you know, we're sent as Jesus' disciples, to bear witness to that hope that mm-hmm. we have. And, and and not only by what we say, but how we live, mm-hmm. by living into it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.